When you're a mom, juggling work, family, kids, errands, it can all sometimes be a daunting endeavor. You have limited time when you're not caring for someone, and squeezing in life's little necessities can feel like you're trying to drive a Mack truck down a narrow alley. There simply isn't room. I often ask myself, how much time can I take during a lunch break? Can I run to the bank or swing by Target? Is there enough time to pick up a few groceries or fill up the tank? In the case of Jessica Paget, a 33-year-old mother of three who lived in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, she had about 30 minutes for lunch at the daycare where she worked and where her youngest child spent his days with her. 30 minutes was just enough time to drive to her parents' home, less than 10 minutes from where she worked, help her stepfather with a problem he had using his computer, and use his fax machine to send a document to an insurance company. Jessica Paget left work at about 10 minutes before 1 p.m. on Friday, November 21st, 2014, and she was never seen again. She was barely late returning from lunch when her co-workers began to worry. A phone tree sprouted and then took shape. Calls to Jessica's husband, Micah Paget. Micah contacted her mother, who was out of town at the time of Jessica's disappearance. Then he called her stepfather, Gregory Graff. No one had seen or heard from Jessica Paget. After a few hours, that phone tree branched out to the Northampton County Police, then the Pennsylvania State Police. Five days later, police found Jessica's body after someone confessed to her murder. If her family was shocked by this confession, that was nothing compared to what was in store when her murderer told police why he'd killed Jessica Paget. I'm Dina Marie your host on this twisted journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Philly. Philly. Northampton County is a small area in Pennsylvania's Lehigh Valley, just about 20 minutes north of Allentown, the next largest city, and about an hour and a half north of Philadelphia. Northampton may sound familiar to you if you listened to the episodes about Grace Packer. Northampton County is where Grace's adoptive mother was a social services supervisor. And sadly, the story I'm about to tell you is also a tragic tale. Over a year ago, a number of listeners asked me to share the story of a woman named Jessica Paget. I hesitated because I knew about Jessica's murder. I knew what happened to her, who killed her, and why. I didn't know them personally, but you couldn't live in Pennsylvania and not be familiar with Jessica's story. It's maddening and frustrating, as most murder cases are. It's tragic and sad and heartbreaking. But there is a gruesome element to the murder of Jessica Paget that made me very reluctant to share her story. Regardless of what I might know or remember about the stories I tell, I research them as if I'd never heard of them. I include my recollections, recollections from friends, people who watched in the sidelines in awe or horror, and I dig as much as I can as if I'm an outsider with no knowledge of the story I'm about to share. As hard as I researched, I found very little about Jessica Paget as a woman, or a teenager, and a human being, other than what you might expect news articles would share about a murder victim. 
almost everything I read centered around her disappearance, her murder, and the absolute agony over who'd committed the crime. No, it wasn't her handsome husband, Micah, who adored her. In this episode, the husband didn't do it, and we'll get to her murder a little later. What I want to do is share with you what I was able to learn about Jessica Paget and what I see when I look at photographs of this young woman. Jessica spent eight years with a man named Michael Paget, who goes by Micah. Most of the photographs I've seen are of Jessica and Micah's wedding. Her hair is in a fabulous updo with tiny crystal bands across the top. It reminds me of a Grecian goddess. Her hair is a warm brown that blends into blonde like a balayage. Her eyes are green, and they appear to me to be the sort of green that could turn hazel or gray, depending on the light. In these photos, Jessica Paget wears very little makeup. She looks younger than her 33 years. There's a rosy hue to her cheeks, and I can't be sure, but it looks like there's a smattering of freckles across those cheeks. Jessica's got tan lines. Not surprising because she was married in August 2014, although she and Micah had been together for many years and had three children. One was from a previous relationship Micah had, and that was Jessica's stepchild. No one says the wedding has to come first. There are no rules in these situations, or at least there shouldn't be. Jessica Paget's wedding dress is strapless. It's covered in a delicate lace, and just the tiniest little bit of lace trim rises up above the edge of the dress. She looks glorious. Most of the photographs are outdoors, and the setting seems perfect for her. That rich, tan skin warmed by the summer sun against a lush backdrop of trees. There are photographs of Jessica by herself, some with family and friends, of course, photos with her husband, Micah. He's wearing a simple white linen shirt and pants, and he appears as if he's trying to be cool. In one photograph of Micah and Jessica Paget with their children, Micah looks at the camera with an expression that appears to me to say, yeah, I married this hottie, the mother of my children. Yeah, I know I'm a lucky guy. You got something to say? Not today, because look at my beautiful family. I've seen other photographs of Jessica Paget online holding her children when they appear to be newborns. Pictures with her best friend, Shauna. A photo of Jessica in a purple strapless dress that looks as if she could have been attending a wedding. Photos in t-shirts, on the beach, and in every photo, that smile of hers lights up her entire face. You can imagine it was the sort of smile that was infectious, no matter where she was or whom she was with. Jessica Paget loved children, not only her own children. For two years before her murder, she worked at Duck Duck Goose Child Care Center in Northampton, Pennsylvania. And she'd been taking classes at Lehigh County Community College to pursue a degree in early childhood education. In everything I read, Jessica's friends and co-workers, her husband, her sister, her mother, everyone remarked about her caring nature, especially with children. She was often running her kids to ball games and practices. She was an engaged parent who absolutely loved being a mother. Micah Paget called Jessica his rock. In a number of interviews with different news outlets in Lehigh and Northampton counties, he talked about Jessica being a source of support for him and standing by him. Micah talked as if Jessica made him a better man, a better father, and, in my opinion, listening to her husband and reading what he shared about their relationship, it sounded as if Micah really looked up to his wife, Jessica Paget. On Friday, November 21st, 2014, 
Micah Paget awoke early, as he often did, to head out to his job working construction. Jessica and the kids were still home in bed, but they weren't asleep for long. There were breakfasts to be made, school drop-offs, and then Jessica and her youngest son drove to Duck Duck Goose where Jessica worked. She was fortunate that her son attended the same daycare where she was employed. Although he wasn't in the same room where she taught, she could check in on him. And that's something I know all mothers who have children in daycare would love to do. Jessica had an errand to run that day, one she planned to fulfill after work. But according to her co-worker, Shannon Tumini, Jessica Paget's stepfather, Gregory Graff, wouldn't stop calling her. He claimed to have a problem with a Microsoft program, and since she was planning on swinging by her parents' house after work to use their fax machine, couldn't she come over earlier or on her lunch break and kill two birds with one stone, help out her stepfather, send her fax, and be back to work in a matter of minutes? Graf seemed insistent Jessica come over as soon as she could. He ran a fencing company, and he had a home office, so perhaps Jessica thought if she didn't help her stepfather right away, it would negatively affect his business or his employees. Jessica Paget left Duck Duck Goose at 12.50 p.m. Her co-workers expected her back within about 30 minutes, certainly at the latest by 1.30. 1.30 came and went. Jessica Paget hadn't returned. Her co-workers called her cell phone, but there was no answer. Maybe she got tied up at her parents' house. Perhaps the issue her stepfather had with his computer was a little more than Jessica realized. So they waited a bit, then called again and again. About an hour later, one of Jessica's co-workers contacted her husband, Micah, who was out on a job site. Have you heard from Jessica? She left about an hour ago and was only supposed to be gone a little while. She's not back and we can't reach her. Micah Paget tried his wife. He called again and again only to have the same results as her co-workers. There was no answer. Micah called Jessica's mother, Danelle. She was in Florida because she and her husband were building a house there, and Danelle was picking out materials for their new home. Danelle hadn't heard from Jessica either, and immediately, she was scared. They were all scared. Had Jessica been in a car accident? Was she injured and unable to answer her phone? Was she in the hospital and no one alerted her family? Any number of scenarios run through your head when you're trying to reach a family member, whether it's a spouse or a child, and in a split second, your mind considers every horrifying alternative. Because according to Jessica's mother, Danelle, Jessica Paget always answered her phone. Between working at a daycare center and being a mother of three young children, you have to answer your phone. Micah knew from the team at Duck Duck Goose that Jessica was headed to her parents' house. So he called her stepfather, Gregory Graff. Greg, have you seen Jessica? Is she at the house? Nope. Gregory hadn't seen Jessica. He wasn't sure if she'd stopped by while he was out earlier that day because Jessica had her own key to her parents' house. So she could have popped in when Greg wasn't home. Her stepfather was out working at a job site and he'd only gotten back to his house at 1.30. Jessica hadn't shown up since he'd been home. Micah Paget called Northampton County Police and reported his wife missing. Their first efforts were to contact the hospital to determine if anyone matching Jessica Paget's description had been admitted. Jessica wasn't in the hospital, nor was she in jail. The other location the police checked was the morgue, which is a gruesome thought, but it's a necessary step in the early moments of an investigation. Jessica wasn't in the morgue, which was good news, but it didn't change the fact she was missing. Soon after Jessica disappeared, her family created a page on Facebook. Help find Jessica Paget. In less than a week, there were over 7,000 people following that page, praying for Jessica's safe return. According to her husband, Micah, 
In the days after Jessica's disappearance, thousands of people helped search for Jessica Paget. And Pennsylvania State Police are investigating a report of a missing woman named Jessica Paget. She's from Whitehall and was last seen leaving her job yesterday at Duck Duck Goose Child Case Incorporated. Now that's in the 1200 block of Canal Street and Northampton. She's five feet, two inches and 130 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. If you know anything, please call police. Around 7 p.m. on the night of Jessica's disappearance, Northampton police were able to ping Jessica's cell phone. It was in her car with her purse and her car keys, abandoned in a parking lot along Main Street in Northampton, not far from the daycare and her parents' home. Upon surveying the area, police found a surveillance camera on a building across the parking lot where they discovered Jessica Paget's car. This footage unveiled a timeline of events that occurred shortly after Jessica left work that Friday afternoon. Jessica Paget's white Subaru Outback pulled into that parking lot at 1.13 p.m., 23 minutes after she left work. Someone got out of her car, walked through the parking lot, down an alley, and out of sight. I say someone because the height of the person who exited Jessica's car was too tall to be Jessica Paget. With help from the state police, who wound up taking over the investigation, authorities searched for other surveillance cameras between Duck Duck Goose, the parking lot on Main Street, and Jessica Paget's parents' house. Police hoped that if they could catch her car between the daycare and the parking lot or anywhere in the vicinity of her parents' home, they would be able to find Jessica Paget. That theory was a good one because on Sunday, November 23rd, Pennsylvania State Police pulled footage from a surveillance camera at a gas station and convenience store they believed Jessica had to pass on the way to her parents' house. As police watched the footage from the gas station, they saw Jessica Paget's white Subaru pass by Main Street at 12.56 p.m. The timing made sense. It was just a few minutes after she left the daycare, and the car was headed in the direction of Jessica Paget's parents' house. Fifteen minutes later, later than the police expected, they see Jessica's car come back up Main Street. But instead of stopping at the traffic light, the car tore through the gas station, turned left out of the lot, then right back onto Main Street. And I know that may sound confusing, but a lot of us know what this looks like. Most of us, at least in the United States, have seen someone cut through a gas station or a parking lot, any sort of business on a corner to avoid stopping at a red light. That's exactly what Jessica's car did, which didn't make sense. It wasn't something anyone thought Jessica would do, even if she was worried about running late getting back to work. And she wasn't running late. That gas station was only six minutes from the daycare where Jessica Paget worked. Her co-workers expected her back around 1.20, maybe 1.30, so she had no reason to drive like a maniac. Jessica wasn't driving like a maniac because Jessica Paget wasn't driving her car when it was picked up a second time on the gas station surveillance camera. Her murderer was behind the wheel. Three minutes later, Jessica's car pulled into that parking lot, the lot where they found her car on Friday night, the day she disappeared. In that footage, they watched someone get out of Jessica's car, head to the back of the parking lot, and walk down an alley. What police didn't notice in that footage the first time they watched was a white pickup truck pulled out of the alley and left the parking lot at 1.14 p.m. 
just one minute after Jessica's car pulled into the lot. Two minutes later, at 1.16 p.m., that white pickup truck is captured on the surveillance footage from the gas station on Main Street, heading in the direction of Jessica Paget's parents' house. While the Pennsylvania State Police didn't recognize that truck or see anything in particular about it that would give them any indication who was behind the wheel, a local Northampton cop watching the footage knew exactly who it was. That white Ford pickup truck belonged to Jessica Paget's stepfather, Gregory Graff. Once police realized the white pickup truck seen leaving the lot where Jessica Paget's car was abandoned Friday afternoon belonged to Gregory Graff, they knew he hadn't been truthful when they interviewed him and Jessica's mother on Saturday, the day after Jessica disappeared. Although her mother, Danelle, was in Florida at the time of Jessica's disappearance, she caught the first flight home. When the Pennsylvania State Police interviewed the Graffs, Gregory said he hadn't seen Jessica Friday afternoon. He'd been out on a job for his fence company and didn't get home until 1.30. And he said his fax machine was on the fritz. So there was no reason for Jessica to come to his house to send a fax because his didn't work. After 1.30, many of Graff's employees came to the house to pick up their paychecks. If Jessica had been in the house, there were plenty of people who would have seen her there. Graff told police he had no idea where she was. And for the first 48 hours or at least until police realized Jessica's stepfather, Gregory Graff, could have some connection to her disappearance, he seemed to be just as worried as everyone else. There was absolutely nothing about Jessica's relationship with her stepfather to indicate there was any friction between them. Since Gregory Graff entered Jessica's life in 1997 when she was a teenager, they seemed to have a good relationship, not only when she was young, but as she grew up. According to her mother, Danelle, Gregory was someone Jessica relied on, as well as her own father. She commented on social media that she had two great dads. So how could her stepfather possibly be connected to her disappearance? Police interviewed Gregory Graff again, this time without his wife and at the police station instead of his home. They told him they found his truck on surveillance footage where Jessica's car was abandoned. Graff had an explanation for this. Earlier that morning, he dropped off his truck for service at a nearby repair shop. But Graff claimed he changed his mind and then had his neighbor, Karen Gundrum, give him a ride to pick up his truck. Graff used the word coincidence when he described driving through the same lot where Jessica's car was abandoned only moments before. But that was a lie. Like everything else Graff told the police, his family, and Jessica's mother. On Sunday, November 23rd, friends and family searched the Graff compound in Northampton County. I say compound because between the house, a garage, Graff's business distinctive fence company, multiple sheds spread across seven acres, there was a lot of ground to cover. Gregory Graff tried to make the search easier on everyone by steering them away from the areas he'd already searched. No point in going back over ground he'd already covered. And that was a lie. Two days later, Graff told his wife he'd kept something from her. When he arrived home Friday afternoon, November 21st, Jessica Paget's car was in his driveway, but she wasn't there. When he walked into the house, he found blood on the carpet, but again, no sign of Jessica. Besides working at Duck Duck Goose, Jessica also did work for Graf's fence company. He claimed his stepdaughter recently told him she owed people money and she was afraid they might do something to her or her family. Who those people were and why Jessica Paget owed them money 
Graf had no clue. But when he found her car and the blood-stained carpet, he told his wife he panicked. He said he was afraid police wouldn't believe him. So he moved Jessica's car and then the next morning went to a local hardware store and bought carpet cleaning supplies to clean up the bloodstains. None of this added up. Every story Gregory Graff told, whether it was to the police or his family, changed with every telling. Jessica Paget had been missing for five days. Her husband, her sister and brother, her mother, Jessica's friends, the entire community were out of their mind with fear and worry. And for five days, Gregory Graff knew exactly where Jessica Paget was, but he kept his mouth shut. On Wednesday morning, November 26, 2014, Gregory Graff voluntarily met with Pennsylvania State Police and confessed to killing his stepdaughter, 33-year-old Jessica Paget. During his interrogation at the Pennsylvania State Police barracks in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Graff told police Jessica arrived at his house around 1 p.m. on Friday, November 21st. That fax machine she needed to use actually worked, and police were able to confirm Jessica sent a fax to Northampton Medical Insurance at 1.04 p.m., 14 minutes after she left the daycare. While she sat at his desk, after she sent the fax, Gregory Graff shot Jessica Paget in the back of the head with a 22 caliber gun. He said nothing to her. She had absolutely no idea this was about to happen. After he shot Jessica, he hid her body in a rear bedroom of his home. He drove her car to the lot on Main Street where he ditched it with her phone, purse, and keys inside. He admitted he drove like a bat out of hell as the police already knew watching Jessica's white Subaru fly through the gas station. After dropping off her car, he got in his pickup truck and drove home just in time to meet his employees who were coming by for their Friday paychecks. Gregory Graff's motive for killing Jessica Paget, his stepdaughter of 17 years, was one of the most despicable reasons I've ever heard. It's perverse and obscene. Hours after murdering Jessica, while his wife was in Florida, shopping for carpet for their vacation home, while his son-in-law was talking to police about his missing wife, Graf set up video cameras and filmed himself having sex with his stepdaughter. Jessica was dead, as if murdering her wasn't bad enough. He desecrated her body. You guys can hear this is a little tough for me to get through and I'm not going to share any details about what was on those tapes. Gregory Graff claimed something in him snapped. That's the same defense his attorney used at his trial in 2015. Something just snapped. Something happened when he saw Jessica there in his office. Something in his mind broke. And when it did, Graf claimed it triggered thoughts of sex. And he had what he told police was a crazy idea, so he acted on it. During his confession, Gregory Graf told the police he knew what he did was wrong and he tried to cover it up. In a direct quote from the recorded interview, Graf said, I wasn't thinking. I thought I could get away with something. At that point, my mind was still spinning basically thinking of sex for whatever reason, 
During that time, I tried the video. I don't even know why. And that is complete and utter bullshit. According to Northampton County District Attorney John Morganelli, two days before Jessica's murder, Graf went on a little shopping spree for sex toys. His wife was out of town, so why the urgent need to spice things up in the bedroom? Graf's internet searches included queries for landfills in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania. But instead, he took Jessica's naked, battered body, rolled it up in a comforter, and buried it behind one of the sheds on his property. Shortly after his confession on November 26th, Graf led the police to Jessica's remains. This is what is impossible to wrap my head around. This beautiful young woman who'd recently married her boyfriend, a mother, so much joy in her life. Her sister was expecting a baby and Jessica was going to be an aunt. She gets murdered by her stepfather, a man with whom she seemed to have a good relationship. And that's according to her family, a man who never demonstrated anything other than appropriate fatherly behavior towards his stepchildren. Her husband, her siblings, her step-siblings, Jesus, her mother, they all had to wrap their head around the fact the man who behaved as a second father for the last 17 years of Jessica Paget's life murdered her and then did something even worse. As if it's possible to do something worse than murder your child. In addition to first-degree murder, District Attorney Morganelli charged Gregory Graff with abuse of a corpse. While her family and friends thought the DA might go for the death penalty, he couldn't. Although Jessica Paget was raped, which normally would be considered special circumstances, meaning a crime was committed while committing a felony, the rape wasn't considered a felony because Jessica was deceased when it happened. After his arrest, Graf made a plea to a judge for a public defender. He claimed he didn't want his assets, which could go to his family and take care of everyone while he was incarcerated, to be depleted on his defense. Guess what? The law states if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Not if you don't want to spend your considerable wealth, you will have one provided for you. Graf didn't just have money from the fence business. According to the results from a search warrant of Gregory Graf's compound, police found evidence of a fairly epic weed business, as in marijuana, for those of you that don't use the phrase weed. They uncovered $42,000 in cash in his house, 13 bags of weed, seeds stored in envelopes in a safe in his basement. They must have been some special fucking seeds. Police also found remnants of a grow house in one of the sheds on his property. Based on the evaluation of Gregory Graff's assets, the courts determined he absolutely could afford an attorney, and he was denied his request for a public defender. Gregory Graff's preliminary hearing was on January 30th, 2015. And moments before the hearing was about to begin, District Attorney Morganelli pulled Graff's defense attorney, Jack McMahon, into a private consultation. McMahon hadn't yet seen the videos from the day of Jessica's murder. And by videos, I'm not talking about that parking lot and gas station surveillance footage. Pennsylvania State Police played the videos for the defense attorney, and almost immediately, Graff waived his preliminary hearing. Morganelli believed they waived the hearing because Graff didn't want to sit in the courtroom with Jessica's family and have to watch those videos. Graff's criminal trial was scheduled for September 2015. Now, you might be wondering why there was a trial at all since he confessed. 
He told police every horrific detail about what he did, and when he led them to Jessica's body on his property, her blood wasn't just on the carpet in his office, it was found in so many other places in Graf's home. This should have been closed, but it wasn't. Graf was charged with first-degree murder, and his attorney hoped for a verdict of third-degree murder. According to The Morning Call, a Lehigh Valley newspaper serving Allentown, Lehigh County, Bethlehem, and Quakertown, after the preliminary hearing, Graf's attorney indicated he was pursuing a mental health defense. He said he thought Gregory Graf suffered, and this is a direct quote, an instantaneous mental health breakdown. So, Graf had an instantaneous breakdown, even though hours before Jessica Paget's murder, he hid his pickup truck in the alley behind the parking lot where he eventually dumped her car so he'd have sort of a getaway car for himself. He called her over and over Friday morning while she was at work, telling her he needed her to come to his house because of a computer problem. Her co-workers verified that. Some of them used the phrase, he blew up her phone because he called her so much. He bought sex toys two days before Jessica's murder. He had two cameras, not one, but two ready to record his sick fantasy. That sounds like premeditation, folks. And District Attorney Morganelli used all of that and more to prove it was indeed a premeditated murder. Gregory Graf's trial was scheduled for September 2015, but in early August, defense attorney Jack McMahon filed a motion requesting a two-month delay. The defense team claimed they needed more time for physicians to conduct further evaluations of Graf's mental health. And as if that reason wasn't enough to request a delay, McMahon was from Philly, and he had cases in the city of brotherly love he had to attend to, as well as Graf's case. Much to the chagrin of the Northampton County District Attorney's Office, the delay was granted. Graf's trial was pushed back to November 2015. After days of witness testimony from Jessica's mother, her co-workers, the owner of the Ace Hardware Store, where Gregory Graf purchased cleaning supplies the morning after Jessica was murdered, Testimony from their trash collecting service, who claimed Graf called for an early pickup soon after Jessica's murder. The DA played the videos for the jury. They didn't play the videos in their entirety, but I can't imagine that would make a difference. Family members left the room. Some jurors had to look away. One juror in particular who was interviewed by The Morning Call talked about how hard it was to watch and the effects it had on him afterwards. I couldn't finish reading the article. There weren't any graphic details, but it was just so upsetting to think about being in that courtroom and having to endure something like that. But a few of the jurors said the reason they pushed themselves to witness that evidence was because what Jessica had to endure was so much worse. The court made sure the TV couldn't be seen by anyone other than the jury, and I'm sure they thought that may be some small comfort, but dear God, there is no comfort in any of this. And Morganelli wanted to make sure the jury had all the evidence they needed to consider when returning their verdict. On Friday, November 13th, 2015, almost one year after Jessica Paget's murder, the jury deliberated just six minutes. That's it. Six minutes. Less time than it took for Jessica Paget to drive to her parents' house. They found Gregory Graf guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. After the trial, Micah Paget spoke on behalf of Jessica and her family. 
it wasn't a shock. It was something that we all pretty much expected. Sitting through the trial, listening to all the evidence and all the troopers and everyone talking and stuff, we all knew that everyone did a, a fantastic job of what they did. And, and this isn't something that you prepare yourself for. You try it as much as possible, but once it starts to happen, all that's out the window. But, uh, I mean, we're all, we're all just trying to be as close as we can, be supportive of each other, and just trying to get through it together, you know. There's no, no one person that took a, a hit on this. We all did. The entire community did. So, the only thing we can do is help each other, pick each other up, and just try to keep on moving forward. And she was my best friend. She was the mother of my children. She was my wife. She's the only girl I've ever loved. You know, it's just one of those. It's the most wonderful person you'd ever meet. Jessica Padgett's family is also fighting to change the laws in Pennsylvania so that rape after death is considered a felony. I'd love to tell you Gregory Graff slipped into obscurity. Eventually he did, but not after making a nuisance of himself for a few years. He submitted an appeal for a new trial in August 2017. First, he claimed he was high when he killed Jessica. He blamed shrooms, which is what we call mushrooms, hallucinogenic mushrooms that grow in the wild, although some people doctor them up and lace them with synthetic drugs. But he said he was high from shrooms, weed, and booze. He claimed he blacked out when he killed Jessica. Really? Because less than four minutes after Jessica's murder, Gregory Graff was seen driving her car, then his truck, and other than trying to dodge that red light, which actually took some skill, Gregory Graff didn't seem to be suffering from a blackout. Nor did any of his employees who were in the home within 30 minutes after Jessica's murder reported that Gregory seemed drunk or high. Then he claimed he had ineffective counsel. No, he didn't. The evidence proved Gregory Graff planned to murder his stepdaughter because he wanted to have sex with her. Graff did not have representation when he submitted this appeal. He drafted it himself by hand, and in it, he claimed he and Jessica had an argument. He lost his temper because of the drugs and alcohol and killed her in a fit of rage. He made no mention whatsoever of the sexual acts or the video. He said that once he sobered up, he tried to cover up his crimes and was unsuccessful. Then three months later, at the end of November 2017, Gregory Graff withdrew his appeal. Apparently, he realized the best thing he could do was accept his sentence and go away. There were other times Graff popped up after Jessica's murder. He called Jessica's mother from jail a few times. Danelle claimed one of those calls was on Christmas Eve, and Gregory called to wish her and the family a Merry Christmas. She lost her shit over that one. I think that is absolutely understandable. In July 2017, Graff fought Danelle's divorce petition. He wasn't happy with the proposed settlement, as if he should have any voice in anything at all. I can't imagine the pain the Paget family, Jessica's mother and her siblings, her friends and co-workers, anyone who knew her, must have experienced when she was murdered. After her murder, her best friend set up a GoFundMe account and it raised over $10,000 very quickly, which covered the cost of her funeral and helped her husband, Micah Paget, care for their children. Even if D.A. Morganelli could have requested the death penalty, Gregory Graff would probably never be put to death because Governor Wolf has repeatedly said there will be no capital punishment in Pennsylvania. I'm on the fence about capital punishment. 
I take what I feel could be considered a very wimpy stance because I say, to me, it depends on the circumstances. I don't think it's a black and white issue. In the case of Gregory Graff, it is very easy for me to see through my indecision. I think he should have been put to death. No, that wouldn't bring Jessica Paget back to her husband and children. But what Graff did was beyond depraved and violated every sanctity among humans. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters. But there's no one there, no one there, there's no one here with me, no one is here with me, no one is here with me, no one is here. Yeah.